time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk to Sue Robinson, professor of journalism and mass communication here at UW-Madison about her latest book, News After Trump, Journalism's Crisis of Relevance in a Changed Media Culture. We'll talk to Professor Robinson about the book, as well as how this project ties into her broader teaching and research interests. I'm glad that I'm on the mend and can be here today because, you know, you just came back from an extensive time off from the university working on a book, and I, I need to get as much time around you before I graduate. So how has that been to be back on campus? It's been good. It was a really rough transition because I was still recovering from COVID, and then the year before had been covid pandemic. So I had been virtual. So I had been two years without seeing anybody. (laughs) So, so, but eventually it got way better, right? I feel way better now than I did for the last two years, basically. So it's nice to be back with students again, for sure. Yeah. Are you in Madison? I am. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So let's start with the genesis of the project. Um, So there was so much discussion, debate, and critique about media coverage during the 2016 presidential campaign in the context of questions of neutrality, bias, and quantity of coverage some candidates were getting compared to others. So what prompted you and your co-authors to embark on this book project with the focus that you took? Yeah, so my the first author in the book is Dr. Matt Carlson from the University of Minnesota, and he tells the story that he was emptying the dishwasher with his wife and lamenting the fact that the news cycle was so frenetic and there was way too much for us journalism studies professors to sort of keep track of and that he wanted to kind of document everything. And so he's had this conversation with his wife the wife convinced him to write a book because she's a she's actually a famous author. He says yes. And then he calls me and he was like, hey, what do you think? Do you think I should do this? Is this going to be a waste of time? And I said, no, I think this is great. And can I write it with you? Somewhere along there, Seth Lewis, who is from the University of Oregon, sort of tagged on with us. And it was such a wonderful collaboration between the three of us because we're all journalism studies But Matt is more sort of an academic journalism studies, and Seth and I are both former reporters. So we had the shared vision of creating a vessel that really documented this point in time at which we're seeing a massive transformation in journalism, what in particularly mainstream journalism in the United States. If we started out thinking, oh, we're going to, we want to document the whole attacks on the press that are happening. Press is the enemy, the people kind of stuff that was happening as soon as Trump got into office at that point. But it quickly became more of a, a moment in which we could see this was just a culmination of more than a decade of 
downslide, I guess, for the press itself. And this particular set of circumstances that were happening politically and culturally and economically for the press, which had been happening for a couple of decades at that point. In here, in this book, we try to explain it. That's that's why we we decided we wanted to do this. And it's not, it's one of the first books to come out after the insurgency on January 6th. So we were we were actually all done with it at that point. And then it happened and we were frantically rewriting it in January and February. And we were able to to get that in. And then Oxford University Press was managed to turn it around pretty quickly. So that's sort of what we were thinking as we pondered this whole idea of a book about Trump. Yeah, that's so timely. I would be, we probably don't have time to get into it right now, but I'd be so curious to know which sections were added right after the insurgency. That would be another question. Maybe we can get to at the end if we have extra time. I mean, we threaded the whole thing with the insurgency. If you look at it, it's it's in either the intro and conclusion of all the chapters because it was so big, right? And right after the insurgency, the National Security Advisory gave a bulletin warning of domestic terrorism based on false narratives. And that is huge, right? I mean, and at the same time, the world, the global journalism organization that measures how safe journalists are, United States rose to top five of most dangerous places for journalists to be. We had these kind of flashpoints over the last few years that really indicate a, a key moment in journalism survival. That's fascinating. Wow. To dive a little bit deeper into some of the specifics of the book, one of the important components of the book identified right in the title is a changed media culture. So I'm curious, how much of the story is Trump actually driving changes in journalism and attitudes about political news? And how much is him just being really good at taking advantage of what may have already been happening in this sort of slippery slope where traditional journalism is losing some of its original meaning and relevance? That's such a great question, Claire, because Trump was just a symbol, an exacerbated symbol, and exacerbated like the acceleration of what was happening already in terms of a decline in journalism's irrelevance and a decline in their ability to tell the day's story with any kind of authority. Because Over the last few decades, starting perhaps with the 90s talk shows, the conservative talk shows, we started seeing a a rise of this sort of parallel information world dominated by conservatives and conservative media. And now we have these two spheres where we have sort of the kind of mainstream, more liberal main news organizations like CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times and MSNBC. And then we have this other sphere led by Fox News, but it's there's a whole bunch of different publications in there now from Breitbart to the National Review to, to whatever. The issue is we, we've always had these different kinds of alternative spheres to the mainstream, but the mainstream had always sort of won out in terms of the shared set of facts uh, by policymakers and, and, you know, particularly white people because we had these other sort of subgroups with ethnic media and different kinds of e-zines and, and all of that. 
But what had happened is the conservative media sphere just got a whole lot more funding and a whole lot more attention back in you know the early 2000s. And so we have now competing attention where we have one of the spheres who not everybody in it, but a lot of the people in it don't mind peddling in fake news, being intentionally misleading with the way that they present their facts. And half of the population of the United States are now engrossed in that and do not have any other news sources. So we really have this incredibly polarized environment. We've talked about polarization for years now, but really right now, if you look at the polls, it's completely different. And so your conservative friends and family are not getting the same facts that you're getting over here. And Trump was able to use that to his advantage. And everybody loved Trump, right? Because he brought in money. He brought in money for CNN. He brought in money for MSNBC. He brought in money for Fox. He's also very savvy when it comes to the media. So he was able to tap into something that had already been brewing for quite some time. And what do you think when comparing that that money that was being brought in, those like views that a lot of you know TV networks were getting when they got to cover Trump compared to the kind of reckoning that journalists had to do after the fact and they had to think about how they had covered Trump and if they had covered him accurately and well, considering, you know, his relation to disinformation and misinformation. There we go. All the informations. So so 2016, the election of Trump was real mea culpa uh, for mainstream media because they didn't predict it. Um, and, and that's in part because of that polarized information sphere was already happening, but kind of in a way that we didn't know about it or we hadn't bothered looking for it. And you had all these mainstream journalists now all of a sudden saying, how did we miss all of these rural, working class, suburban women, all of these, you know, Trumpers in their feelings. And the answer was because they've been losing relevancy with all of these populations for a long time, just as they had lost relevancy for, for example, black and brown journalists. And so we saw this sort of revolution be after 2016, 2017, 2018, where, for example, Texas Tribune hired a reporter just to go out into Texas, into Trump country in particular, and to start learning and to start understanding. And that was really great to see, but we didn't really see a huge shift in coverage. Like we still had this kind of binary, he said, she said, these very sort of scandalous headlines. And it was just constant, if you may remember, it was just this relentless news cycle of what Trump said or what he didn't say or whether they could call it a lie or whether they could call it racist. And it was just every single day. We were pretty critical in the book about that coverage. And it, and it lasted really up until 2020. And then in June 2020, we had the Black Lives Matter movement and something broke, right? We, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had protests against police shootings. But in June 2020, all of a sudden we had this cultural reckoning happening and it came on the heels of the Me Too movement in, in 2017. So all of a sudden we had all of this kind of thinking through like, who are we? What, how complicit were we in these different sorts of movements where we were harboring you know, sexual harassment and sexual assault and racism. And, you know, are we one of these systems of oppression? And all of a sudden we started seeing newsrooms as the campaigns were gearing up for November, 2020, 
we started seeing a real shift. People were calling out the lies. People were calling out the racism. Even when the election happened and right after it, you might remember there was that period of time about whether the election was going to be certified or not, you know, and Trump was saying it was a fraud. And we had all three networks in one of those November press conferences pull away from Trump's press conference in which he was saying the whole election was a fraud, which of course was completely a lie. And that was the first time we'd seen that, even though after 2016, everybody was wringing their hands about how could we have missed that? So it did take some time, but I do think that eventually we we came upon some kind of a beginning of an evolution, I think, in the way their mainstream news reporters are thinking about how they cover and what they cover and how they, you know, how they say whether something's a lie or racist or something beyond the binaries. I think I remember too, like when that turning point started to happen and CNN, just their banner was like, Trump said this, he's wrong. You didn't even have to listen. You could just read that. Yeah. It's startling, you know, to to all of a sudden see that shift. And for that whole four years, there was a constant back and forth that was happening at what we call the the sort of meta journalistic discourse level in the trade press and in blogs and, you know, and in some of the, the news itself when they were covering themselves, this constant like, well, should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we? And then people were making these decisions and then the public said it was the wrong decision. And then you'd get this whole like, well, here's why we made that decision. And it wasn't like it came on all of a sudden because there was this whole conversation that was leading up to it. But I agree with you. It was like once it started happening, we started seeing it everywhere. So what was and is this lasting impact and importance of Trump referring to press as the enemy of the people for, you know, political journalism, local journalism in the short and long term? That's a really hard question. And it's it's an important one, though, because I don't think we've ever seen this kind of animosity towards the mainstream journalists. It's always been there a little bit. When I was a reporter, I was a reporter for about 13 years. I had a I had a t-shirt that said, trust me, I'm a reporter, which of course was a joke. The the popular culture had villainized us in a lot of ways. And so there's always been that that kind of acrimony and bad reputation. You know, in the end, everybody sort of always connected journalism with democracy as the fourth estate, as a watchdog on all the institutions, particularly our government. And that hasn't really been something that was ever questioned. And now all of a sudden, one of the things that Trump did do was change this sort of thread of negative popular culture into an outright hostile act where journalists were getting attacked at rallies. You know, people were wearing T-shirts that said, journalist wrote some assembly required. I mean, that really, really threatening stuff. As I mentioned, United States has grown in terms of the global scale of most dangerous places for a journalist to be. And to me, it, it was indicative of how far journalists had fallen in terms of the public psyche and how much PR work the industry has to do in order to restore faith in what they do and their connection to democracy. And how we do that, I have a lot of ideas about, but none of them have been studied. 
none of them, well, we're studying them now, but we don't have like any concrete evidence um, about what will work to rebuild trust in journalism. So I don't know really the answer to your question, except that it's a it's really important for everybody to sort of understand that journalists are doing the best they can under really, really difficult circumstances and low pay and really long hours and the newsrooms are contracting and they have they're asked to do the job of three different people and they also have to write and they have to you know, produce, they have to do video and they have to edit audio and they take pictures because the photographer has been laid off. And so I wish people would understand more about what their job is and how they go about it and, and how they go about knowing whether something is true or not, whether something's a verified fact. We're working on a number of different projects at the industry level where we hope that will make some kind of impact. So for example, one of the projects I'm involved in involves this video game with the Wisconsin Field Day Lab, where they're designing a a program, an educational game for seventh grade classrooms. And the seventh grader will be immersed in the world of the journalists and all of the chaos that comes with that, with trying to decide what's true and what isn't true and on deadline given all of this conflicting information. And so I think more, more sort of media literacy like that, but we have to figure out how to bring back these two spheres of information together where we can have a shared set of facts for a discourse in, a, in an environment that is safe for these people who are just trying to do their job. It's so interesting that you mentioned that like game tactic, because that's, I'm involved in a lab right now that's doing work like that for anti-bias and anti-discrimination training just in general. And they have a racial focus, but I guess you could totally apply that to a profession. Yeah, I think they're, they're doing it with a, a flood so that it can also be used in a science curriculum. And it's really fun. You have a timer that you have to be wary of and you're set inside this like really kind of interesting high pressure scene and you have to make all these decisions and then you have to write a story. You have to actually write a story in this in this game. So I'm really excited to see like we should be getting a um, a full pro- prototype of that in the next I don't know, a month or two. And one of the things that we're trying to do with it is help people understand the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary information. We've lost how to figure out, you know, is this information credible? What kind of source is it? You know, is this like somebody's rumor that has just gone viral? And we also have the added complication now of bots, right? We have Russian and Chinese bots, and they're very intentionally trying to create chaos in our democracy, as both of you know. These are so sophisticated, and they've been planned um, with such savvy that it's even difficult for some journalists to know what is true and what isn't comes in certain forms online. And so that's another thing that we have to teach in journalism schools is like, we have to go beyond just interviewing somebody now. Like we have to triangulate the data in such a way that they will have credibility and authority when they say something is is true or not. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of trust in your sources, as a professor of journalism, were you surprised that there was all of this really sort of tradition-breaking news coming out of the White House during the Trump presidency in terms of scandals and famous generals resigning and 
all sorts of really should be front page news. But instead, Trump supporters didn't believe what he called fake news. And for a majority of people, it seemed like that those types of stories became somewhat irrelevant. Do you have a a take on this? Well, it it goes to how powerful that conservative media sphere is, because really, they're those people who are listening to Fox and the and the other conservative sites are not seeing all of those other headlines. They're just not seeing them, so they don't even have to make. And, and if they are seeing them, their commander in chief are telling them not to listen. You should just listen to me. In fact, he actually said that at a bunch of his rallies. That means that we have to figure out what is the appeal for that conservative sphere that all of these people are so caught up in it. And there's been a bunch written about it. And I particularly am thinking about Roderick Hart's Trump is Us book, where he talks about it in terms of this different kind of value system. So the the mainstream media has always sort of fallen along this value system of like democracy is good. The American dream is real. Government is good. It just sometimes has some bad apples in it. But the conservatives have really worked since during the Tea Party era to cultivate a sense of resentment, a sense of anger, a sense of fear, and all of these negative emotions that then get imbued into the kinds of stories that they publish. And so these people who are who are listening to it, it resonates with them because they feel resentful that they aren't farther ahead than they should be. And they feel like this group is actually getting all of the money and they should be getting the money. And, and hey, I lost my job at the factory and they're being too hard on small business or whatever. All of these emotions are being very, very skillfully triggered, and then they perpetuate itself. And so we have to figure out a way to join those value systems in some way or to find some kind of common shared ground. And that's what we do talk about in this book. We talk about moving to a moral voice, a a morality that's not based on ideology. It's not based on like, whether um, we think abortion is a good idea or not, or whether gun control is a good idea. That's not the morality we're talking about in this book. We're really talking about, we have to figure out a shared value system that's no longer democracy is good because we're, we're, we're moving away from those sort of abstract concepts. So we have to figure out a, a very personal, authentic sort of understanding of who we all are in the world around us and how we can care for each other collectively in community. There is that opportunity to do it, but it does mean we have to completely rethink how we write stories and how we talk to people and how we try to reach people. What are some of these solutions or steps news organizations and individual journalists can take to make journalism better and more relevant again and more useful for our readers? There are so many but they all come down to this idea of understanding their communities and all of their communities, not just sort of the higher educated white liberals that they've been catering to for the last few decades. I will say there's lots of good journalism happening, right? I mean, the problem is, is that people aren't seeing it. They've lost relevancy with whole groups of populations, and, and those people haven't looked at the news outlet in, in a decade. The key is going to be capturing that attention again and getting their good journalism out in front of people in a way that 
there's like an openness to it. And what my shtick, and I talk about it a little bit in this book with my co-authors, but I'm also, I also do a lot of consulting with newsrooms and, and writing some other books where I'm suggesting we need to move from this sort of transactional journalism, like we're going to give you the facts, you're going to believe them, to a more relational journalism that centers engagement practices. And engagement practices through like using influencers for all these particular groups to break into what had been closed networks of conservative populations and getting to know them and meeting them and saying, hey, like I just wrote this story. Can you tell me what you think about this story? And doing follow-up with them and really kind of engaging with them a way they haven't been. And so those are some of the the steps that we need to take. And that's what we're trying to retrain journalists that have already been out in the field and also retool our curricula in reporting schools so that we help young journalists figure out how to do that because it hasn't been in our our skills wheelhouse since then. That makes a ton of sense. Even if those journalists or news organizations are taking those steps to hopefully improve the trustworthiness of the media in general. What do you think the realistic timeline for that change could be? Because I guess our thought is that younger citizens who are used to this media environment now are already alienated from traditional news. Like in this world where so many young people, especially like Gen Zers, are mostly getting news from like TikTok and Instagram and other untraditional sort of social media. Would you say that there's a realistic hope or a realistic timeline that they would demand a form of journalism in the future that's more consistent with democratic values? I mean, I definitely have to have realistic hope because otherwise I should just retire at this point. But I do, I do have a lot of optimism for where we're heading in this in this industry. And that's because I see the energy of the young people coming up and the sort of earnest, genuine feelings that they want uh, an information system that helps them govern and improve communities and solve wicked problems and all of that the existing legacy news outlets that have traditionally been very institutionally focused, very sort of difficult to evolve, are now at a point where they have to evolve or they're going to die out and they're not going to survive. And they are ready to start changing. You know, we're being invited in to train. They're taking six weeks out of their time. Harkin and Solutions Journalism Network have this brand new fellowship and there are 22 organizations, pretty you know, mid-sized organization, including Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and Wisconsin Watch. And they are taking six weeks out of their deadline days to retrain in these different kinds of methods. And so I do, I have a lot of optimism because I'm starting to see change. And you're, the first question you asked, though, was, have we already lost everybody and can we get them back? And that is the question that we don't know the answer to yet. And I think we can, right? I think it's a matter of mainstream journalists and all of the new kinds of journalist outlets that are popping up. And there are t- there's like a whole new nonprofit sector. There's a whole new um, sort of just investigative sector. Think tanks and NGOs are starting to have their own newsrooms. Like there's all of this sort of 
news-like action happening. And they're very savvy in terms of using Snapchat, using Discord, using you know all of the different kinds of social platforms that young people have been used to or are starting to use. And so t- to me, that part of that is a delivery mechanism that can pretty easily be fixed. And part of that is a cultural issue that is not as easily fixed, right? Because if you don't have the habit of looking at, you know, the New York Times or NPR or BBC every day, it's really hard to get back into that in your 30s, for example. But I don't know that that's a bad thing, right? I, I think it's okay that we have lots of different news outlets shoveling out information. I think the problem is, is when you have a, somebody who's doing it malevolently in order to push a particular political agenda, and so they're purposely misconstruing the facts. That's the problem, right? So that's a conundrum that I grapple with a lot. And I don't really have a a great answer for it um, because there's not a lot we can do about those other entities because of the First Amendment. You know, we, we are seeing Google and Facebook and Twitter and these other platforms starting to do these plugins or, you know, being more interested in monitoring for misinformation. And I'm sure you have seen it on your own news feeds of your various social platforms like this. This article has not been verified or this article is not from a verified source. Like if you start looking, you'll start seeing that in some of these major platforms. But because we also have to grapple with the idea that so many people are getting their news from friends and family, right? And so they don't even know what the original source was. They just know that their Uncle Joe said this. And Uncle Joe is somebody I respect and love. And so I'm going to believe what he says. And so, you know, that's just the kind of thing that we're we're trying to figure out. It has to be a multi-layered solution. And it's going to be a marathon. It's not going to be a sprint in terms of solution. I love my Uncle Joe, but my Uncle Joe um, exclusively drives motorcycles without helmets in his free time. So we all have an Uncle Joe. I I don't know how it happened, but we somehow all have an Uncle Joe. That's right. Claire, you have an Uncle Joe. Absolutely. I have several. We've had this conversation. (laughs) Yes. It comes back to the surface. As we're approaching the end of uh, our conversation, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you maybe want a quick put in there, maybe, maybe, maybe preview your next book, whatever you'd like. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that, Edison. Um, yeah. I mean, I just want to say that we talk a lot about what is the journalist's job here, right? Like journalists have to do this and they have to do that and they haven't done this. But I also think it's incumbent upon all of us as news consumers, as people who vote, as people who who want to see our communities thrive, that we're a lot more discerning about the information sources that we're going to habitually look at and that we also need to diversify our sources and look at a lot of different sort of voices and start figuring out ourselves, like what rings true for us, what seems authentic and that has to be like part and parcel of whatever solution we we go to. And then the second part of what I wanted to mention is indeed, I have another book coming out probably the end of the year, and it's called How Journalists Engage a Theory of Trust Building, Identity and Care. And in that I do, I sketch out a much more sort of robust path forward that centers on identities 
of journalists and how journalists themselves enact trust-building relationships with different kinds of people and that there's this sort of thread of care uh, and compassion that hasn't traditionally been a part of the tool skill, <laughs> the skill that we have traditionally taught of journalists. And so as part of that, I think it can bring us back to a kind of more organic relationship between journalists and their different news communities, or at least I'm hoping so. I'm really, I feel really buoyed by the different kinds of projects that are enacting this kind of reporting because it just feels more real to me and more relevant um, to me as someone who's also trying to navigate all of this in my, in my own private life. And so I'll just say those two things in hopes that people gain some hope from that, because I, I do think this is not something that we have to accept. I think we can all change this, right? And I think in the last couple of years, we've seen some pretty huge movement and momentum around social justice, for example, and trying to get all of the parts of our institutions to be more equitable for all these kinds of demographics. Like we're starting to see real change happening. It's, it's small and it's slow, but it's there and it's happening. And I haven't seen that in a long time. And so that really also gives me a lot of optimism. That is our show. Thank you very much, Professor Robinson, for coming on and telling us all about your very cool book. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.